2: Truth and Movies. Today, Blade Runner 2049. Denis Villeneuve's long awaited and long reply to Ridley Scott's rain drenched sci fi classic. Is it a modern masterpiece or itself just an authentic looking but artificial replica of the original? Then, from sci fi to Reagan, Ronald Reagan, in CNN's time capsule trip back to a disarming president, The Reagan Show. Plus Film Club, Richard Linklater's delirious detox drama, a scanner darkly, gets a well-deserved reviewing. It's Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. And on Truth and Movies today it's Hello, David Jenkins. Hi. And a welcome back to Michael Leader.
3: Oh hello. Well, lovely to see you, Michael. What have you been up to since last we spoke? Oh, gosh, I went off to Toronto for the International Film Festival. <laughs> Saw 30-odd films in less than a week. Did you see The Death of Stalin? I did. Is, is the buzz justified? I think the buzz is justified. I think it's a really dark historical comedy. It reminded me of GCSE History Lessons.
4: Bingo. I've seen that too as well, and no. I, can,
3: I can concur.
4: It's really funny and, and really, really nasty. Right. That I just, there was just a press screening in London.
2: Crikey! Sorry, no, it's okay. Uh, was that your standout
3: of the TFF, or was there something else you'd like to? Throw well, I think out? my standout was The Shape of Water, Guillermo del Toro's film, which right. uh, is at the LFF uh, next week, London Film Festival. Good and luck getting tickets to that, friends. I know, yeah. mm.
2: We've put up a comment section on the Little White Lies website. So far, there's only been one poster, and it is Adam Woodward, who has um, put up a list of our film club films, just in case anybody wants to go back and check some of the. Uh, you know, some of the back catalog, but well done to Adam for that. If you'd like to go along there. it's at the little white dot com website and you click on the podcast section and bingo. you can leave comments or if you prefer in the more conventional fashion, you can send us an email truth and movies at t c o london dot com is the address for that, or twitter at l w facebook as well is another option. Mark Woodruff has written in. he says, "Hey guys, on last week's pod." I heard a clip of Goodbye Christopher Robin and it seems to be another film drowning in music. Mark is not happy with this. He's uh, fed up with wall-to-wall mood-pointing music. He says it works when it's in the hands of Nolan and Zimmer, but generally it's an irritation being told by a film how to emote. That's kind of what directors are doing, actually, when they make films. But I do take your point, Mark. He says, uh, I watched French Connection recently and there's hardly any score... Consequently, it's eerie and visceral. In fact, any movie without music these days is more effective. What do the esteemed
3: panel think? Michael? I think it's horses for courses, uh, really. Uh, there are. I mean, it, it feels that the 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 film score is having quite is in quite rude health over the last few years. There are some really standout film scores that are actually becoming cooler than the the films themselves. Mm. I'm thinking of the It Follows soundtrack by Disasterpiece. I'm thinking about Mika Levy's Under the Skin score, which are becoming almost art pieces in their own right and they've been performed separately. But uh, but as um, as Mark says in the email, Nolan and Zimmer. I guess he's referring to Dunkirk. Mm. Film scores are being used for different purposes now they're not just sort of mood dressing they're being used as almost Aural thrill ride spectacle oral soundscapes and we'll come to that maybe with Blade Runner. Mm, interesting okay where, where do you stand on this David? I
2: agree
4: I mean I think that a lot of scores for sort of middle brown mainstream movies like Goodbye Christopher Robin are I guess the equivalent of kind of Muzak something to kind of keep you awake between the scenes more than uh than to sort of give you that sort of
2: aural thrill. Sorry, aural thrill. Mm. and um, Sadly, yeah. Yes. <laughs> you say keep away. In some ways, they're almost there to subdue you, so you just let it all wash over you. It really is. It's like kind of whale song, isn't it, in a mm. bath? It's that kind
4: of How many- relaxing. <laughs> How much whale song do you hear in a bath? <laughs> Surprisingly,
2: lots, actually. I do, okay. Uh,
4: right. Bottle of, <laughs> <bottle> of <Shablis, laughs> Yeah. bath, you know,
2: scented candles. Oh, right. Okay, how I write. greatest use or non-use of music in a film, I'm going to say Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid which uh, deploys Burt Bacharach, only Burt Bacharach, with some of the greatest written for the film songs ever. But then also for the crucial part of the film, the chase, where the, who are these guys? The bossy coming after them doesn't use a note of music. And it is almost unbearable how that ratchets up the tension. What a great movie. Do you know, that's interesting you say that
4: because we're doing a piece for Little White Lies at the moment, which we're just researching on the greatest songs, like pop songs written for movies. Oh, right. And we've just gone. Ice World's in there, isn't it, really? it might be i can't remember maybe not but <laughs> i like the first spice spice girls album though and it is the 30th anniversary i oh don't know 30th 10 no, 20th old. maybe 20th, 20th anniversary of <laughs> yeah. spice world so it would be the time to do it but yeah we're going to hopefully be
2: publishing that soon maybe we can talk about that a bit further on the show super right now it's time for blade runner 2049 35 years, film fans on, from Ridley Scott's initially underrated, uh, misjudged perhaps, sci-fi noir classic Blade Runner, comes not so much a sequel, almost a reply to that film, an exploration of similar themes, which does some sequel work as well, uh, courtesy of Denis Villeneuve, a director who's gathered garlands for his previous work in Arrival and Sicario, both films that left you and I rather cold, David.
4: Yeah, I think that with Denis Villeneuve, I've kind of followed his career, and I, I even I think I remember seeing, I think it's his first film, *Polytechnique*, yeah. at a film festival when it was, it was a late night screening, and I was one of like three or four people in there, and it was in French, and a smaller deal, I guess. Mm. I'm not sure I would have predicted that. About ten years later he would be like the new blockbuster kid on the block
2: blockbuster right. so <laughs> um, uh, this but, is anything but small scale I mean, it's an no. immense in 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 every aspect in in vision certainly in in running
3: time. Did you like Sicario and Arrival, Michael? I think I'm with Davey. Um, it's his earlier, smaller, stranger films that that impressed me. Polytechnic right. is just a, a, a brutal and, and, and pointed film. But then also Enemy is a film that has a, a great deal of mystery and vision to it in a much smaller scale package than what he's done more recently in Hollywood.
2: Well, in this, he's taken on the dearly cherished film. Certainly, I think the director's cut of Blade Runner, which all about Harrison Ford as the the eponymous Blade Runner hunting down and retiring rogue replicants in Los Angeles 20... uh, and rain-drenched Los Angeles of of 2019. Uh, This picks up the story 30 years on and follows some similar themes with a man doing essentially the same job and a mystery that unfolds But
4: mm. it's worth saying here that I think the reason why you're hesitating to to give out details is that when we went and saw the film this week, there was a a plea given, apparently from Denis Villeneuve himself, asking people not to reveal any plot details about the film. And so we're kind of on eggshells here, really, Mm. about actually saying stuff. And, And I mean, a reader did actually get in touch with us recently about some potential kind of spoilerific the material we mm. ha- may
2: have delivered. So, yeah. We'll, yeah, we'll, No, it's we'll, always we'll... good to avoid that kind of thing. Well, let's just focus on the reviews then. Here's one, Michael. Uh, this fellow says, This film is little more than a bauble, shiny, hollow and shatters under the slightest pressure. He goes on to say that Ridley Scott's original is overrated. Who can this rogue critic flying mean, in the face of is
3: just trying to whip up some sort of uh, hits for their website I think <laughs> It's David Jenkins <laughs> is, of course, it yeah. is yeah <laughs> but I must say um and th- since the the screening I've had almost an existential wrangling because it's had such a strong response in nearly every other quarter um from many of our kind of esteemed friends and colleagues in fact and I was left quite cold by this film as well and D- Davy's response on on little white lies actually kind of you know, help me work through this, oh, right? Uh, because it's sometimes very hard when there is a a, a a kind of monolith of hype and a monolith of praise for a film to then think: Did I watch the same movie? Did I sit for a hundred and you know two hundred minutes and watch the same film in in the impact screen and the IMAX screen? Mm. It left you cold. It left me rather cold. And as as Dave was saying, it's kind of hard to dig into the reasons why without going into spoiler territory. Okay. Uh, but I think what I can say is um, the original Blade Runner was such a fascinating. Malformed, imperfect film in all of its three versions, and the spaces, the gaps between the versions, the, the 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 things left out, the minimalism of it is what sparks the imagination. Has been so iconic for the last thirty five years. Hmm. Blade Runner twenty forty nine is a maximalist film. It's an hour longer than Dunkirk. So he's out. He's out. Nolan and Nolan this year didn't nerve, and it just over explains and packs in far too much and goes for huge themes that uh, I think eludes it. Uh, okay. In, in the in the final. Act. David,
2: as the author of those words about Gordy Baubles,
3: uh, I agree. I mean, it's. Um,
4: I think you talk about big themes, but like even that, I'm not even sure. Obviously, I can't talk about the plot, but I almost don't feel I can talk about anything else because I didn't. I don't even get what the theme of the film is. It's so. Set in this very interior world, about this very specific idea of interior in what way in that it 's kind of closed off from a kind of a more general universal read um, i've read a lot of reviews that have talked about how it is about what it means to be human and existence and and birth and i 'm not sure I got any of that really because it 's very so specifically about these replicants these you know this 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 kind of sci fi idea, this notion that I, I just don't feel I can impose any of that, those ideas onto a kind of onto real life. They don't resonate with me beyond that. I think mm. um, it's it's hard to explain.
2: I mean, it's stay with us, this is because it is tricky to, to pin this one down without going into the specifics of it. I would venture that possibly because he's working with one of the masters of the genre, Roger Deakin, Villeneuve has kind of gone overboard on the visual side, and perhaps not been as interested in exploring that that central question, which was there perhaps of what it means to be human, the aspiration to be human, similar themes. I mean, we were talking about AI recently with our Spielberg Retro Fest. Uh, similar to themes to some of the things that came up in that. That's interesting because when I was
4: watching this, um, I definitely, definitely was, was thinking, I wish I was watching AI. I mean, I know that that film itself has got people who are not fans of it at all. Including Mister, hands up over there. Yes, um, but a lot of the imagery feels kind of brought over the the, the big giant statues in the desert and this, this kind of the sort of existential journey mm. in a film like AI. The journey takes you to really surprising places, and this does not take you to surprising places.
2: Okay, what we can say, what's in the trailer, and thus is kind of out there in public domain, is the fact that Ryan Gosling is a Blade Runner, and an element of the story, a central part of the story, is involves him tracking down Deckard, played again by Harrison Ford from the original film. Also involved the Robin Wright Mm -hmm. as Ryan Gosling's uh, boss. Ryan Gosling's, I wouldn't call it a name. His his denomination as K is, is an interesting, interesting reference. Some people call it uh, Kafkaesque. Others have suggested that it's more of an homage to Philip K. Dick, the author of the, uh, the novel which inspired the original uh, Blade Runner. Jared Leto's in there as the, the head of a sprawling tech corporation. It's interesting, I think
4: if you guys have seen the, the, the original recently, you mm. might be able to sort of mm. confirm this, but it actually does feel that this is almost a kind of mirror or an echo of the original in the details, I mean, there, there seems to be like equivalent characters in, in both films. Mm-hmm. This character uh, played by Mackenzie Davis
2: who is a real dead ringer for Daryl Hannah. Hannah in the original. What I would call it is, rather than a mirror... Do you know when Deckard takes the photograph that uh, that he's examining as evidence in the first film and he puts it in his computer so and he goes, goes into it and then out the back of it, basically?
3: Mm-hmm. And I kind of feel that's what Vinilov has done with Blade Runner in this. It's one of those odd sort of sequel franchise kind of uh, films um, that we've had in the last few years. It reminded me a lot of Force Awakens. It reminded me a lot of what Ridley Scott has been doing with the Alien franchise, mm. the way that they take these sort of possible part genre exercises from the 70s and 80s, expand them while still incorporating elements from the original so that you can get the reference. And there are so many echoes of the original, not only in terms of the iconography. You see a lot of similar shots of this futuristic Los Angeles drenched in rain, but it adds new elements. You kind of go to outside the city limits, you see snow as opposed to rain, for example, there's new, uh, there's new weather. But I realised two hours into this film that maybe this wasn't what I really wanted from Blade Runner in a way mm. this sort of expansion of the universe but then to bring it back into a more specific story you really, didn't like the way it brings it into a specific story not really no mm. because what, as I said what was so terrific about Blade Runner is, and I rewatched it over the weekend in fact is that it's such a straightforward almost non-existent sort of film noir plot actually quite straightforward and, and procedural but it's the fact that it's Ridley Scott at the height of his game in terms of world building production and set design the music by Vangelis is, is fantastic and every element other than the plot became iconic and influential afterwards mm. whereas it feels like Denis Villeneuve even working with Deakins is aping and can only kind of re-echo other influences it, you you'd call me the sci-fi guy when I turned up today there's nothing really here I'd say that uh, wasn't as impressive or wasn't more impressive than Valerian for example or Alien Covenant in terms of visuals and I know that's sacrilege to say that about Eakins Ghost in the Shell Ghost I think, in
4: the Shell well. I mean it's Ghost in the Shell is, is by no means a good film but actually a, a lot of the images in this film and a lot of the, the sort of visual motifs I think if I saw like still images from both I'm not sure I'd be able to say that's from Blade Runner, that's from Ghost in the Shell. See, I
2: never saw Ghost in the Shell. I would say that having not seen that film, having seen the original Blade Runner over the weekend, there's no doubt in my mind that the original is still the best. And I didn't particularly like it when I first saw it because back in those days, you didn't have too much information. Harrison Ford in a sci-fi film, I think a lot of us were expecting something more along the lines of Indiana Jones or or Star Wars, and it it really wasn't. took a while to get used to that. This works on a similarly glacial pace or rhythm. But I found it visually stunning, and I, I think that maybe the story doesn't justify the the, the runtime, but the visuals do. We saw it on IMAX screen, and for mo- most of the film, I was just gobsmacked by it. It was interesting, the tweet you sent me, actually, mm. um, the the thing about Harry Kane. Oh, yeah, you said, if it wasn't for Roger Deakins, this would just be Ghost in the Shell. Yes. And I said, that's like saying, without Harry Kane, Spurs would be an ordinary team.
4: But at the same that that's that's not a good thing, I don't think, because... If Harry Kane's injured, then that's...
2: that's well, yeah, that's... but he's not. Roger Deaking is playing in this and scoring goals all over. <laughs> I know, but... I, I agree with you, Michael, that when it does kowtow to the need to actually do its sequel business mm. and actually coalesces the, the the various plot elements into something approaching a story and a resolution towards the end, the last half hour or so, that's when the film is least powerful for me. Mm. But in terms of just a kind of meditation on that world, I I really enjoyed it. And I think um, it doesn't have the power of the original because it doesn't have the story of the original and the dialogue of the original, which is just so fantastic. Wake up, time to die. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe when we all know the iconic lines. There's nothing of that. I don't think I don't recall any lines from this film like that. But, you know, as a lover of cinema, I just visually it's such a knockout piece of work that I could forgive it even its extraordinarily long running time.
3: Yeah, I think I might go back and re-watch it just because I, wa- I, I wasn't particularly overly impressed by the imagery in, in this film. I think Roger Deakins has become a meme in himself, the <laughs> fact that he's been nominated for the Oscar so many times and not and not won to date. And the fact that um, uh, Chivo uh, hasn't made a film this year people make, makes people think that uh, Deakins, this might be his year to win an Oscar. But I don't think this is even on a, on a par of, of you know, Fargo and Shawshank Redemption, the shots that he's composed in those films. Films, okay. Which have become truly iconic. I don't think there's gonna be anything in this. There is a a website um,
4: or, or or I think it might be a Twitter handle called One Perfect Shot. And what they do is they, they grab still frames from movies, they tag them One Perfect Shot, and then it's the director of the Year and the cinematographer. They are these pretty, pretty pictures. And some someone someone's early kind of tweet review of the film is that it's like One perfect shot, 24 frames a second Mm. for for 165 minutes and... uh yeah, I would say that's probably the case. But mm. that what you're also describing is, is a computer
3: screensaver. I'd, I'd, I'd like to say some positive things about the film because I wasn't completely... you know, it, 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 My response wasn't completely negative to it. It has a, a, a very good supporting cast of, of many faces you've not seen in English-language cinema before. I particularly like... Uh, there's a, an actress called Carla Jury, or Jury, who's a Swiss actress, who's in a German film called um, Wetlands a few years ago, a very provocative film. And she had she's, she's in only a couple of scenes, quite important scenes, but... Uh, She's a, a memory architect and she's just got this fantastic energy to her that recalled the original film in the way that some actors would just play a slightly heightened form of humanity. Mm. So it really felt like this was a different world. One thing you specifically cite in your review, David, is is and I think what you felt was a real fault of this
2: film, was its treatment of female characters. Um, the, I think you suggest that they're, it's essentially... Uh, exploiting and and I I wouldn't
4: I wouldn't go so far as say exploiting it it just feels a little cack handed I'm not saying that all movies should be very, you know totally kind of pc about how they depict characters and it's a film where the male characters are are brooding and hard and thoughtful and have important issues to deal with and the female characters are sort of like superfluous they they look pretty they're they're in the background they're naked there seems to be a lot of like very very no strings attached titillation in the film that you think did this need to be here that there's a sequence near the end uh involving gosling and a certain interaction i guess and i was watching it and i was like Why is this here beyond having this kind of...
3: It's it's, It's a a fascinating aspect of the film and I'm looking forward to some kind of deep dives into um, the the film's relationship to women's bodies in particular, both Mm. in terms of the themes of the film, the world of the film, the developments of the plot and so on, and also just pure representation and the way that it responds to some of the characters' dreams and and motivations. I think that scene in particular is quite important to that.
2: There are strong female characters. You cited one. I would say that Kay's boss is another. Uh, The um, Palestinian actress who turns up plays perhaps a... A third, but the point that you suggest in your review, which that there are no, basically all the characters addressed in see-through PVC wear, is, is I think a little bit unfair on on reflection. Uh, I stand by that. I was maybe, maybe I was I was generalising a little, but
4: I, I didn't feel that the quote unquote strong characters, you know, they they were the exceptions
2: that proved the rule. Right, <laughs>
3: Michael, back to you. Sorry,
2: you were saying about the, the women first of all, and
3: then. I, th- I think also Ryan Gosling, I, th- I think he's th- he's doing some good work here as well. He's um, he's definitely in his only God forgives mode. He seems to have two modes of acting at the moment, either his La La Land charm or his Nicholas Winding Refn kind of minimalist uh, shtick. But he suggests a lot going under the surface in this film and that's the the job that that, that character has. David? No, this for me
4: was just inexpressive to the point of tedium um there is so much kind of brooding and clenching that i can i can stand before i I need something a little bit more some some
2: sign that he's actually acknowledging the material and and that he's in that world is there any difference between say his performance in this and another noir classic like bogart in in the maltese falcon are they not essentially is it not just a continuation of that hard-boiled at best suggestive of deep emotions but never going to show them type character bogart in the in the maltese
4: falcon he plays it in the middle rather than like he doesn't brood i mean he's neutral yeah, he doesn't it... have the problems that ryan gosling has well yeah okay. <laughs> he does but maybe just in a, in a slightly different way i guess um i mean I, I thought ryan gosling was perfect in um song to song the Terrence Malick film right. that character that kind of archetype that he's created just seemed more sympathico with the material, the realist element of the material, it just made that character seem more real. Blade Runner Twenty Forty Nine is a genre film mm. and to have that kind of completely closed off, do me brooding kind of act, the the overwhelming emotion that I felt with the film was boredom and it and, and, and this really cemented that.
2: So can I just, I just try and give some kind of context to this for for anyone listening trying to work out whether this film is a bit of a masterpiece, as many have suggested, or, or really just kind of ghost in the shell with pretensions added on. Did you like the original Blade Runner? Well, I wasn't that hot on the, the original. I've seen, I've seen it, I've watched it a couple of times because it's
4: pretty much released, re-released annually in the UK and like there's a new Blu-ray upgrade every like six months or so. I have watched it because I think it's a film that I, I love the idea of it and I, right. lo- and, I, and I really want to like it. One of the things that gets me that I don't like about it and I don't like about the new one is the procedural plotting it's very linear a scene leads to a scene leads to a scene leads to a scene and it's just new pieces of information are unlocked which lead to the next scene and it's it's a very kind of like
2: prescriptive type of storytelling it's not very deep storytelling mm. I think. so you weren't wild about the original you, you haven't been wild about ryan gosling in most of his films apart from song to song is that fair are you trying to tee me up as like no i'm just I, saying I, I, that I'd, I'd gone to this film <laughs> with it's my it's perhaps my not surprising sharpened. that if you don't like ryan gosling and you're not that crazy about blade runner that almost three hours worth of ryan gosling kind of no. Brooding through a kind of futuristic dystopian landscape was not going to light your 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 candle. No, just to no, get no, a perspective no, no. on, on no, this. No, I, I'm not having that. All I, right, I, I I'll go to every single film. Yeah, neutral. I'm ready, sure. I, I, I'm ready to see a masterpiece. I'm sure. But, every but if you don't time. like fish in one place, if you have another fish dish, you're probably not going to like that either. That's what I'm saying. Maybe movies aren't fish, James.
3: <laughs> aren't they? That's maybe a topic for a, another day. Uh, Michael, that, that did you be like another Blade, Blade Runner. Runner? sequel? The original Blade Runner, it's a film that I completely you know, believe is imperfect. Yeah. I, I think the, the plot in particular, I think what, the fact that it's been recut so many times mm. makes it a fascinating case study in, in filmmaking. Mm. If, but I think there are so many aspects in there that um, tickle the imagination. And I, 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 I kind of compare it to, say, the original Star Wars if they didn't make the Empire Strikes Back. It's just this crazy creative pop art experiment of melding genres mm. and bringing new ideas from various worlds of you know performing a visual arts together. And that's what stands up now. It's amazing to you know, we we talk about you know say with Ghost in the Shell and Valerian and so on about Hollywood or or you know certain visual cultures stealing from other cultures, appropriation and so on. But Blade Runner created many yeah. ideas that then created Japanese animation and sci-fi and so on. So hugely influential work. And part of his legend was the fact that it was the
2: ultimate direct-gets-locked-out-of-the-editing-suite story. Mm-hmm. They, they, they even used footage that had been filmed for another movie mm-hmm. to create the original outro in which they're speeding away and Harrison Ford is continuing his voiceover, which the studio had insisted that he mm-hmm. l- lay over the film. Ridley Scott then came back and did the first of the cuts in which the voiceover went... He made the ending much more specific about the nature of, of Deckard. It's interesting that a lot of people might say that this film is actually an argument for locking the director out of the editing suite because you could lop happily 20, 30 minutes out of this film. Um, we we probably should should give a verdict on this. David, I know you had high expectations and... What kind of number would you give it afterwards?
4: My expectations were high, sort of on the kind of four or five level. And certainly after a kind of this initial wave of, of reviews that came out, I was like really buckling myself in for something big. But then I think it was about 20 minutes before I think I knew, no, this isn't working. It, something happened that made me think, oh, it's this type of film.
2: Do you like sci-fi?
4: Yes, I love Starship Troopers. I love Dune. Right. Um, 2001. I mean, like, yeah,
2: I I, I like sci-fi. Okay. And your kind of post, has it, have you begun to kind of maybe rethink, think you're a little bit harsh in your review of it? I think I was maybe not harsh enough. I mean,
4: I would not go back to see this film. Definitely not. But would you advise people not to go? No, I would. No, absolutely not. Even if I thought it was the worst film ever made, I would never advise someone not to see it. And I think a, a lot of people have reacted to my review, going, "Well, I'm still going to see it anyway." And I'm like, "I'm not telling you not to see it. I'm, I'm absolutely this. This isn't consumer advice. This is a critical take on a film which you right. can read and enjoy. I'm not saying don't see a film. I think I hate it when a critic says avoid or don't see because everyone should see every film and judge for themselves. So, hmm. although I would say in in retrospect it absolutely wasn't
3: one for me i'm very specific and about that subjective take on it so so okay. there michael my expectations were very high Based on the trailers, I wasn't actually that excited to be honest, but then Mm -hmm. it was that first wave of response in the last couple of weeks, fortnight or so that rocketed up to five anticipation, I'd say. Enjoyment I'd still say probably a three I think there are things that we can't touch on right now that did intrigue me about the film even if I didn't fully enjoy it and wasn't fully wowed, and as I said, I do want to go and watch it again, so even though right now I don't think this film will stand the test of time certainly with me, so it's probably more in retrospect too, but I will go and watch it again and see, because there are some elements I want to give another go at.
5: Mm.
2: And it just looks pretty amazing. I mean, even if it is like Ghost in the Shell, maybe that's the thing. Maybe I'm just a bit more of a sucker for big sci-fi eye candy. My expectation wasn't that high because I've not enjoyed Villeneuve's work as much as everybody else. And I didn't really see the need to go back and revisit Blade Runner. I mean, how Mm. could you improve on that incredible original? And that equally was a film that I didn't like the first time I saw it in the cinema. I was a bit young. But uh, at the time, I would say that I'd give it a four. It is slow. It's not a massively involving film in many ways. And that the arguments that maybe could have been more emotive, I think, are a little bit neglected by Villeneuve. But I just found it spectacular and really remarkable that he could take on the, the themes of the original and perform his own kind of meditation on on them. It's not a perfect film. It's definitely too long. But I would definitely go back and see it again. Uh, and I'm really glad he made it. It is by far my favourite film of his, but I haven't seen those early ones. Or Prisoners, which everyone's very big on. I think Enemy is, is, is the is the kind of
3: really weird... Well, uh, re- Enemy's a Jake Gyllenhaal doppelganger movie. Oh, nice. So just up until the very final frame is Ooh. just surprising you. It's, okay. It's really, that's really a great. future film club, I think,
2: then, isn't it? It probably could be, yeah. yeah. Do we have a film club for this week? Yes, we do. Okay, we'll talk about that later on. Because that's Blade Runner see it, you may hate it but still go and see it I don't think you will next up we'll be talking about a film from completely the other end of the scale, scale, The Reagan Show
1: The Reagan administration will be
3: remembered for excelling in public relations I think that he has captured the imagination of the American people because of his ability to communicate To be prepared
1: for war is one of the most effectual means of preserving the peace.
2: Well, no danger of any spoilers here then, eh? Uh, This is a documentary made up entirely of archival news and the White House's very own footage, a documentary that it says here captures the pageantry, absurdity and the mastery of the made-for-TV politics of Ronald Reagan. I mentioned it couldn't be more different, this really, to Blade Runner 2049... Much smaller in scale, much more lo-fi as well. I mean, it's, it's almost religiously four by three and curved old-fashioned TV
3: corners. Yes, it's got that VHS haze, TV glow. It's all very much in, of of its time of the eighties. And as you say, it's fully, you know, uh, archival footage. And but in a way that it sets up an expectation almost immediately in the first frame that I don't think it fully plays out. It says that Ronald Reagan, the administration, set up what was called White House Television, which recorded his every move across his two terms, and in the process created more video footage, raw footage than the previous five administrations combined. But really, then across this film which is only 74 minutes 75 minutes you only get maybe a handful of really good clips mm. and it just comes across a bit like a blooper reel in a way of the of the presidency
2: that clip actually that we just played out suggests that there's a level of reflection of other people of talking heads mm. offering a perspective on who reagan was what he represented etc but because it only uses uh, either old tv footage or outtakes from Recordings. uh, That level of that that kind of other level is almost entirely absent.
4: Yeah, absolutely. The monologue is coming from uh, the newscasters and correspondents and critics of the of the era. What's fascinating is that what the people are saying and and the comments that they're making do feel quite interchangeable with. You could think it was a contemporary critic because Mm. you know the way they they're sometimes very outspoken about the president. with the current um, POTUS, a uh, controversial figure, uh, I think you know him, but um, w- one of the things that's happened with, with Trump in power is that there has been this kind of wave of nostalgia for presidents that we thought we hated. It seems that someone like George W. Bush is actually getting a bit of a...
2: being lionised more than, than maybe he he would have expected. Trump's got a big part in that. Also, the the kind of dislocate I mean, the the distance, I guess... Not having them in power anymore means that we can warm to aspects of their character. That's one thing about this. I mean, he hesitate to reuse the word disarming. Literally, that's what's going on in this film. And Reagan is a tremendously charming character, mostly, There until Gorbachev turns up and steals the entire show from him. One thing, Michael, this movie, which kind of has this enormous archive, it's curious that it skips, I think, about a five or six-year part of Reagan's Double term and decides it almost like halfway through it goes oh no let's actually make it about the whole disarmament process with Gorbachev they leave out Grenada they leave out the assassination exactly, yeah. they barely touch on Iran Contra
3: well they 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 set up in the first act of the film if, if you will this this Reagan as the, the you know, the pure PR man. He had a history in Hollywood, so he was the perfect actor for the 80s um, to be president. And But then it does skip forward and very much dives in on the sort of clash of personalities with Gorbachev and how, in that second term, Reagan struggled having... Come to power with you know such such great slogans as you know, make America great again and developing the the, you know, the Star Wars program and so on. Having to suddenly take on an, an insurgent Soviet leader who is open to the West, and then suddenly he has to have a bit of a U-turn. Uh, you know, he's he's haunted by the the evil empire slogan that he popularised. He has to now look at disarmament or you know uh, summits with the Soviet Union, and it just it focuses in on that struggle where it's the great PR man who's you know struggling to find a legacy. But it it, it feels very Glip. it feels a bit glib, but it feels a bit like it doesn't because of the lack maybe of contemporary commentary. It, it, fe- it feels a little superficial or insubstantial in the end because, the, you know, especially where now we're looking back at Reagan and wondering whether it was the first president with Alzheimer's or, or dealing with dementia and so on. Looking at, you know, the older presidents and how maybe you know have it having world leaders in their seventies may have drawbacks and mm. so on. It doesn't really focus on that at all. So the decision by so this is made by
2: CNN Films. The decision to use exclusively old footage is that I don't want to say lazy, but it's a very limited decision, though. Well, I, I I agree with what you said before. I mean, it,
4: it skips over a lot of stuff. And there's currently a, a documentary on BBC on the Vietnam War by Ken Burns. There's this giant do- documentary which takes this very kind of panoramic view of the war and goes into it in immaculate detail. And what I got from watching this was with this huge archive of footage, why don't we get the 10-part the equivalent of the fat political biography that sits in yourself. The 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 one that actually tells you everything and mm. goes into detail and, and really gets under the skin. Do you do you feel you learnt much about Reagan from this? The interesting element that I found was this idea of he fixed his own problem. Like, as you say, he was the one who 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 kind of created this bogeyman image of of the Soviet Union. Perhaps he was responsible for this idea of of like this sort of nuclear terror. You know, it was people were genuinely terrified feeling as they are now about, you know, potential uh, eruptions with, uh, with North Korea that they're going to get blown to smithereens. And then in his second term, he, he kind of fixes that and makes the world safe again. So there is this kind of almost circular kind of motion that's happening like you, you make a problem you fix the problem mm. and then someone else is going to come in and you think is well is trump in his second term just going to fix the problem of of, of north korea which he's essentially created yeah, trump's and then, second term
2: oh my goodness uh, in a sense a i mean second. this is another film perhaps or another story is it did he find a problem and solve it or did he invent a problem for the purposes of um, let's be frank the the military-industrial complex, and then announce that, oh, yeah, we've sorted that one out. I don't know. I mean, there's
3: lots of fascinating things that are not really brought out I don't out. think it, it, is. it is. It is a fascinating that, that, that element where it is presidents spend their first term trying to be elected into their second term and then their second term in those final two years they can almost do the most radical things of their presidency. Or and it's all about legacy. Yeah exactly mm. and then suddenly you know, they, they, they can change tack uh, but it doesn't really tease out those uh, those themes enough really for me and Not I don't either. really necessarily know too much about 1980s American politics really. I, I would have loved say a good Ken Burns documentary on this. Mm. Did you um, did you enjoy watching it? It's a it's a quick watch, a, mm. a, just an hour and ten minutes. A, a, you know, watching it side by side with Blade Runner twenty forty nine, for example. But um, they pepper it with these little clips, which. As I said, they, it seems like a blooper reel for the presidency, where it just become a bit repetitive throughout the film. But the first few times is actually quite quite enjoyable. Where, um, say, Reagan is recording a, a speech or he's having a you know, public appearance, and then the cameras stop, and then he makes a glib comment that if it had been recorded and released at the time, would probably have you know, blown It'd up in his war, face. Yeah. <laughs> There's all well, the- there
2: was that famous one about uh, I've just passed legislation that outlaws Russia forever. We begin bombing in bombing in five minutes, which, which isn't included in this. It was, film. It was a
3: radio appearance. So there's no video footage of that one, which mm. disappointed me. Uh, but there is the, the sort of centrepiece of the film is this uh, recording he's making in, um, it, you're kind of in support of a Republican uh, politician called John Sununu. And he can't... Sununu. He, Sununu, Sununu. And that's the the point. is he, as it, it, It's almost like a behind-the-scenes or a blooper reel track on a comedy film over the credits. He just can't get the the name right. There is a real, well, for me anyway, a real
2: laugh-out-loud moment with the... Was it was Dovna, Dovna Naplovna. He hits upon this
3: Russian kind of Phrase. catchphrase, and yeah. he just uses it every single time until Gorbachev
2: absolutely calls him out on it. Yeah, but um, okay. Did you enjoy it, David? Yeah, I, I thought it was fine. Yeah, it was. Yeah.
4: A, it was a fun little thing. Um, I, you know, I kind of wish it was bigger and longer and more in depth and and had more of a stuff to say. But mm. one thing I also really liked was this idea of it is about Reagan, but it is also about PR and self imp creating a, an image for yourself. And I love this idea of the kind of classic shot of the leader coming out of his house and walking towards the helicopter. Mm -hmm. It's such a kind of stock image of, like, political life, but actually it's very kind of choreographed because Mm -hmm. it means the sound of the helicopter means that you can't hear the sound of the journalists shouting questions at you so you kind of you can just smile and wave and be like why well, can't hear you the helicopter is too
3: loud but even then there's an ambiguity to the way they use that in the film they they say that it, how shrewd it was because mm. it meant meant that the the press pen could never a- ask him questions directly but is that Shrew, shrew managing on his part or is it the team around him saying don't let reagan answer any questions
2: yeah it never actually really nails that thing of whether he was just a, a front man for for something much bigger um, but I, I guess just using old tv footage that's the, the limitation you can't really come up with any conclusions mm. 30 years on i, I want to give a parallel here with blade runner go on well in the sense that if if you could say that Ronald Reagan was the original. If he was Blade Runner, 30 years on, we're again living with a kind of vastly overextended, orange tinted, sprawling <laughs> sequel. Roger Deakin's uh, Reagan show. <laughs> <laughs> Reagan show, yeah. Mm.
4: Uh, starring Donald Trump. Yeah, I think the, the, certainly the orange is the, the, the kind of
2: tangerine dream. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, all right, Well, so um, uh, numbers on this? I would say threes across the board. Threes right? across the board.
3: I'd probably say three, three and, and a two. I'm not sure I'd revisit this 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 film or right. think that it's essential. I, I think that there's a better film to be made of this footage even.
2: Yeah. Uh, it has a certain time capsule charm, yeah. so I'd say threes across the board yeah. probably as well. There's bits that, you know, I might dip into
0: Only at Sleep Number Stores or SleepNumber.com.
2: Proceeds to this week's film club, which is, excitingly enough, A Scanner Darkly. <laughs> film club, every week we dust off underrated or perhaps forgotten classics. Or just films that are interesting, anything like that, it's, it's quite... a It's got a broad church, isn't it, film club? Anyway, this week, it's one of Richard Linklater's most interesting films. Uh, A wonderful cast, including Robert Downey Jr. and, let me get this right, Keanu Reeves, (laughs) Um, make their way through a delirious, uh, rotoscoped, seven years from the present day, near future, in which uh, Reeves is an undercover cop uh, involved with the dangerous new drug and all sorts of dangerous people, here's a moment when Robert Downey Jr. is not helping with Karan uh, burgeoning sense of paranoia.
1: I left a little surprise for him. What? Yes, anyone entering the house while we were gone today will receive a little surprise, a little something I perfected early this morning. What kind of surprise? It's my house, Jim. You should ask me before you start wiring up my house why would you get so uptight about protecting your house from intruders why would you care i'm just saying it's my house that's all you can't start going around booby trapping my house
2: okay okay oh, geez or as the germans would say liza which translates to be cool right hope you enjoyed this let's get some comments Uh, first off here's david jenkins saying is robert downey jr
3: wasted in marvel movies what do you think i think he is yeah it's 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 such a shame to go back and see this film and see when he was when he was kind of down on his luck and trying different things and taking risks whereas now he'll just be iron man forever
2: (laughs) he's locked in the man in the iron man mask oh there we go in a very real sense Uh, david also said i can't believe warner brothers signed off on this in a good way, it is a remarkable thing for a studio to come up with. I know it's crazy.
4: I mean, it's it's kind of like a few increments away from experimental cinema. Yeah, it's the product of a big studio, and yeah, it's a really radical move. I think box office wise, when it came out, it didn't didn't really make much of a splash. But what, I mean, yeah. I'm not sure. people... the highest people...
2: grossing digitally rotoscope animated feature ever. But it was also the most expensive, so it lost money. I'm not sure that this film was made with uh,
4: ticket sales in mind, really. But, right. I mean, it's a really kind of full-on, dedicated-to-the-source creative endeavour, and it's all, all the better for it, I
2: think. All right. What, what, what did listeners make? Did we get a
3: big mailbag on this one? There is a mailbag here. Daniel Hooper said it's one of the most underrated films of the last 20 years, aesthetically and thematically, and a stunningly accurate adaptation of Philip K. Dick. hmm And uh, Andrew Cullen, absolutely brilliant movie, one of the best in the past 15 years or so, stunning visuals and a great performance is all round too. Great cast, isn't it? Because you
2: mentioned Reeves and Robert Downey Jr., but also Woody Harrelson's in there, uh, Winona Winona Ryder, um, other people.
3: Well, it's just a, i think it look, looking back at it now it's it's such a fascinating almost a time capsule of the the period of the industry that it was released in. it's the last gaps gasps of the sort of independent cinema it's, it's a warner film but it's a warner independent pictures film it was made when richard linkletter was doing his one for me one for you thing where he just made school of rock he's about to make bad news bears he flits this in between and then it has Downy jr on the ropes coming back after his years in in the wilderness Keanu reeves coming off the matrix movies so mm. he's Big star at that time. Winona Ryder. We made she's, this just
2: for kind of uh, what, what, what for you scale? Call it? Yeah, for,
3: for scale, which proved a bad decision. Somehow they managed to get Winona Ryder, Darren Junior, Harrelson, and uh, and and Keanu Reeves for like eight million dollars budget. It's crazy, you know. Um, but it's it's also truly experimental. The rotoscope animation, mm. which Linkletter had used on Waking Life, in more of a sort of portmanteau style with different styles coming in. It's more consistent in this one. Really gives it a hallucinatory edge that is you know, makes it almost timeless in a way. Mm. Um it, it's I, I it's fantastic. I remember seeing this at the time at the the departed corner house in Manchester. Um and it blew me away then because I was going through my sort of university phase of loving Philip K. Dick and uh, outsider culture and Richard Lingletter. but now it just—it's the, the—it's the sadness that comes through, the tragic elements of the story, the the, the sort of autobiographical elements of the original book. Yeah, where Philip and- K. Dick did—you know—he he had a detached cottage with with wife and kids, and then he broke—you know—he became single and just brought in all these street kids who were involved in drug culture, and being a, the older man, almost posing as a kid. Informed this sort of it's that autobiographical. That autobiographical. The book and the film finish with this uh, tribute list to all of the people he knew who died or when you know uh, had had significant mental or physical problems afterwards.
4: And 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 yet I wouldn't call it an anti-drug film in a very in in that sort of. It's not a kind of preachy, conservative, finger waving film because actually it takes this far broader look at drug culture and what and. It's a really amazingly balanced film about mm-hmm. looking, saying these are the, the kind of effects of drugs and they can really muck up your brain to the point where, you know, this is, there's a bit where Keanu Reeves is, is being told that his left and right hemispheres of his brain are actually at war. But then this, the, the title actually refers to the kind of security state that has been developed to try and quash this drug epidemic mm. It feels very Reagan-esque, almost. Mm. You know, it's 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 very war on drugs kind of yeah. thing, and the scanner itself is the watchful eye, eye in the sky that can see your every move and can can judge whether you're you're up or down or left or right, and um, it gives the film this amazing paranoid vibe. It grafts
3: perfectly onto a sci-fi tinged kind of political thriller Mm. sort of vibe to it. And and what also struck me this time watching it was it was the perfect match of director and and source material because Richard Linkletter with Slacker and Dazed and Confused had been writing that sort of druggy hazy, loquacious kind of rat-a-tat dialogue with his characters and they fit so perfectly into Dick's world here.
2: Yeah. Uh, Any more comments you'd like to put out there David? Oh yeah
4: Um, Ian Campbell, I can't speak to how closely it stays with the source material but I was quietly blown away by it especially upon second viewing uh, daniel riley visually i've not seen anything like this before or since its release and the star works perfectly with the source of material definitely underrated movie in my mind and the and the cast gives stellar performance if you haven't seen it before why the hell not
2: if you enjoyed it do go and watch waking life because although not as perhaps coherent in in some ways visually it has a I think a really interesting thing to say, that film. I I really enjoyed that. The decision to bring in Keanu Reeves here, Mm -hmm. uh, which in in some ways, it's almost typecasting, a dystopian near-future thing, and what is reality and and paranoia. It's very much sharing a bed with with the Matrix. He's wonderful in it, though. Oh, I I agree, and... um... I love this idea
4: of, yeah, these, these actors who reach a point in their career where the money kind of loses interest and the the idea of being creative and working with creative people starts to have a massive appeal. The ultimate kind of example of that now is someone like Robert Pattinson who kind of made his money on the Twilight movies and now he's he got this Rolodex of, like, the world's greatest directors which he want, who he wants to work with and he's kind of working through them and making amazing films like Good Time, which is like... And 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 Leonardo DiCaprio as well, I mm-hmm. guess. I mean, he, you know, his he was the matinee idol, who is now the kind of the revenant, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, um, yeah, I, I I love it when those kind of worlds collide. I
2: guess. With Shia LaBeouf, he, Shia LaBeouf maybe, yeah. And he's trying uh, to do that, isn't he?
4: Yeah, he's trying. To, well, to be yeah, fair, yeah, played to I, him. I know. You
2: know? Absolutely. Um, Robert Downey Jr. apparently wrote most of his lines on post-it notes and scattered them around the set so that he could read off them while filming a scene, given that it was going to be rotoscoped afterwards, and they would just basically animate them out. It's a bit sneaky, isn't it? What do you guys think of the actual rotoscope aesthetic?
3: I I, I like it a great deal, but I'm an animation fan, so I I love when um, two forms of filmmaking collide like this, and the way that it... It puts it, it engages your brain in a different way to whether to, to if this was just a straightforwardly filmed or straightforwardly animated film because it's looks realistic, almost too realistic. But then it's the, the you can see the the wobbly lines of the hand painted or hand drawn aspects of the rotoscope.
4: So just to confirm, it's it's filmed like a normal film, filmed like a normal film, and then in post production, it's then they the, draw, the real images they trace that the... are am- animated. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I
2: think yeah, I mean it totally marries with the shifting. Perceptions of reality that uh, the characters enjoy in in this film, uh, the fact that it's animated suggests that it's not one hundred percent reliable, in the same way that film would be, uh, and also the fact that even within a single shot, the lines are blurring, the perspective is shifting. It mm-hmm. con- continually keeps you a little bit off balance, off kilter. Uh, so I think it was a, a great move, and it, one that cost him any profit on the film. But uh, well,
3: there are two practical applications. It, it is it just it does mean that maybe you could make it more cheaply because your labour is intensive in post as opposed to during the shoots and you don't have to therefore spend as much maybe in terms of flashy cinematography and so on. But then also there's one aspect of the film which is the scramble suit which is right. when Keanu Reeves goes to check in with his, um, you know, as an undercover cop, goes to check in with his superiors. He wears a scramble suit so nobody at the police station knows who he is. And that is an amazing creation where it's just shifting facial features and that would have been at the time prohibitively expensive for a film of yeah, this scale to do, do you think that's why he decided uh, script would we'll just animate this? I think it's probably, knowing Richard Linklater, he's a poetic soul, so he probably saw it as a reflection of that sort of heightened emotional mental state that, hmm. that K. Dick wrote, wrote in. Where does this stand for you among the Linklater uh, pantheon? Oh, wow. I think it would be top five. Um, it's not quite up there with the boyhoods and dazed and confused of the world for hmm. me, but... It's such a a beautiful film in its own right that it's up there definitely. Right. There are a lot of great films in in the panthe in the
4: Linklater pantheon, and yeah, films like Slacker and Waking Life is another one which I I adore. Mm. But yeah, it would it would certainly be up there. And, okay. and Boyhood and is, everybody wants somebody some. wants some which I yeah. I love, which is and he's uh, made another film. And he, yeah, he he, he I, I've seen it.
3: Is it any good?
4: Last Flag Flying. Ah yes. Yeah, it's interesting. It's very straight. Was it one for him or one for them? I think it's one for both. Huh. I mean, it's it's a weird one. It's it's probably his straightest ever film, but I think we should leave it at that. Right. And it's a sequel to the classic, The Last Detail. And, it, and, it, and so, in in wow. many ways, it's interesting. In you know, Linkletter has you know has films like Boyhood and the Before trilogy, where he kind of meet, meets up with characters at different times in their lives. And it's interesting that this film is doing that with another movie mm-hmm. rather than something he's made before.
2: Interesting. So. Mm. All right. Um, when's that coming out, David? Uh, I don't think it's yet got a distributor, but it's going to be at the London Film Festival. Ooh, all right. Uh, we will be too in the London Film Festival. London Film Festival, which begins this week. Uh, now, what's next week's film club, David? So the next week's film club is a film called The Squid and the Whale
4: uh-huh. by, by Noah Baumbach, uh, which we're doing because uh, Baumbach has another new film out called uh, The Meyerowitz Stories. And there is a kind of tacit connection between the two it's a kind of revisitation of the characters a lot like last Fag flying yeah we're going to explore that one again
2: are we also doing Wambach's new film
4: yeah we're going to talk about mayor stories uh, okay. which is um on netflix and it's, i think it's going
2: to be out in some cinemas as well and also a movie called mm-hmm. the snowman yeah it's a joe nesbo scando noir yeah, starring Michael Fassbender. Mm. Are you excited by that, Michael? Have you seen it already? I've not seen it yet. It, right.
3: it, it looks like, like the Girl of the Dragon tattoo, doesn't it? The, the There's a remake. lot of
2: snow and people dying and uh, a stellar cast because it's also got well, loads of people. Charlotte Gainsbourg, J.K. Simmons, Toby Jones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting cast. And Thomas Alfredson who did Let the Right One In. So a little bit of And Tinker Tail And that, yeah. Mm. Mm. Fair point. Good. Uh, anyway, those are films that we'll be talking about next week. I hope you'll be listening and perhaps contributing some thoughts yourself about The Squid and the Whale, which sounds a little bit like this. Your mom and I. Okay, yeah.
1: Uh, mom and I are going. We're going to separate.
0: You're not going to be leaving either of us.
1: We're going to have joint custody. Frank, it's okay. I've got an elegant new house across the park.
0: Across the park? Is that even Brooklyn?
1: It's only five stops on the subway. It's an elegant block, the filet of the neighborhood. We'll have a ping-pong table. I don't play ping-pong. And we'll
0: both see you equally.
1: How will that work? We're splitting up the week, alternating days. Why? Because I love you and I want to see you as much as your mother does. But there's seven days. Right. So how will you split evenly with seven days? Oh, I've got you Tuesday, Wednesday, and Saturday, and every other Thursday. Every other? That's how we each have you equally. That was your father's idea. Don't do this! How will I get to school? There's a subway four blocks from the house. Four or five. No more than six blocks. And what about the cat? The cat. We didn't discuss the cat. Your father will pick him up on those days when you're switching houses. I'll have to drive here two additional times a week. you got a place on the other side of the park. If you got in a place near here, it wouldn't be a problem. This neighborhood's gotten very expensive. Joan, it's very painful for me to stay in this neighbourhood. You know that. Don't be difficult.
2: I feel banished. Good. Michael, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. What have you got up next that you're most
3: excited about? Oh, well, I'll be going to London Film Festival right. well, pretty much every day for the next week or two. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. That's living all right. And you, David? Same, I'm just going to have a a
2: weekend binge and uh, catch up with some stuff that I've missed at the festivals. Okay, great. Excellent. All right, well, much look forward to then next week by the sound of it. Do hope we uh, see you there, listeners. Uh, For now, this has been a 7 Digital production. (laughs)